This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Our words of integration and guidance this morning are from Walter Brueggemann. Jesus, in his solidarity with the marginal ones, is moved to compassion. Compassion constitutes a radical form of criticism, for it announces that the hurt is to be taken seriously, that the hurt is not to be accepted as normal and natural, but is an abnormal and unacceptable condition for humanness. In the arrangement of lawfulness in Jesus' time, As in the ancient empire of Pharaoh, the one unpermitted quality of relation was compassion. Empires are never built or maintained on the basis of compassion. The norms of law or social control are never accommodated to persons, but persons are accommodated to the norms. Otherwise, the norms will collapse, and with them, the whole power of arrangement. Thus, the compassion of Jesus is to be understood not simply as a personal emotional reaction, but as a public criticism in which he dares to act upon his concern against the entire numbness of his social context. Empires live by numbness. Empires in their militarism expect numbness about the human cost of war. Corporate economies expect blindness to the cost in terms of poverty and exploitation. Governments and societies of domination go to great lengths to keep the numbness intact. Jesus penetrates the numbness by his compassion and with his compassion takes the first step by making visible the odd normality that had become business as usual. Thus, compassion that might be seen simply as generous goodwill is, in fact, criticism of the system, forces, and ideologies that produce the hurt. Jesus enters the hurt and finally comes to embody it. Reading of scripture from Psalm 8, as rendered by Nan Merrill. O love, my beloved, how powerful is your name in all the earth. You whose glory is sung in heaven by the angels and saints, who in the innocence and spontaneity of a child confound those who are mighty and proud, you quiet the unloving and fearful. When I look up at the heavens, at the work of love's creation, at the infinite variety of your plan, what is woman that you rejoice in her, and man that you delight in him? You have made us in your image. You fill us with your love. You have made us co-creators of the earth, guardians of the planet, to care for all your creatures, to tend the land, the sea, and the air we breathe. All that you have made, you have placed in our hands. O love, my beloved, how powerful is your name in all the earth. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks. 
And I'm excited to welcome our guest preacher for today, Ryan Kuja. Did I say that correctly? Our very own Ryan. He's a graduate of the Seattle School Seminary. He's a spiritual director and a surfer and an all-around good dude. So let's give it up for Ryan. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here with all of you today. So a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. So several thousand years ago, during the period of the Roman Empire, a series of rulers known as Caesars sat on the throne. Each Caesar was regarded as a lord and savior, a kind of divine king a son of God who is acting on behalf of the empire to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity that they believed would spread across the face of the earth. And early in the first century, Caesar Augustus was the emperor. He was hugely popular. People loved him. People loved his vision, his leadership. He proclaimed himself as the man who would return Rome to its glorious past. His vision was literally to make Rome great again. Not, not making that up. <laughs> so under Augustus, a Jewish rebellion rose up in Judea against the Roman occupiers in an effort to assert people's right to liberty in their belief that no Caesar was their lord, that God alone was king. In retaliation, 15,000 Roman troops descended on Judea to squash the uprising. 2,000 people were crucified on a single day. Others were taken by the army and sold off into slavery. And right in the midst of this imperial reign of terror, a Jewish teenager named Mary was visited by an angel. The angel said to her, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. The angel Gabriel spoke this politically charged message using words like reign and kingdom and throne, describing to Mary the deeply subversive event that would soon unfold in the midst of this Roman occupation and its violent campaign in Galilee, where she lived. The angel brought a message from the God of the universe, revealing that she would conceive and give birth to a son, a child, who would have a kind of power that the empire could never even imagine. Now, fast forward 30 years later, Mary's son commences a ministry of peace and healing and reconciliation. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He proclaims a new social and political reality that he refers to as the kingdom of God, a kingdom contrary to the ways of violence and exploitation of the kingdom of Rome. 
And because he was an ally of a kingdom other than Caesar's, the Romans, of course, saw him as a threat to their power. After three years of ministry, the Roman military hung him on an execution stake. And the story, as we know, continues. Jesus was resurrected three days later, defeating the powers of death. His followers started communities to live out together his message, which was subversive to the kingdom of Rome and the lordship of Caesar. Some of them left Jerusalem and traveled throughout the ancient world, sharing the gospel, this good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the everlasting kingdom of equity and peace and human flourishing that he was installing on earth. Now, fast forward to the year 311. In the year 311, Constantine was emperor. And Constantine had some bad blood with his brother-in-law, Maxentius. Maxentius lived in Rome, had an army of his own in Rome, and they vied for power, these two brother-in-laws, between about who would have control of the western part of the empire. Constantine didn't like that there was this power struggle going on, so one day he decides to march to Rome. Our sign just fell down in the wind. <laughs> he decides to march onto Rome to meet Maxentius's army, knowing full well that his brother-in-law's army has four times as many soldiers as his. And on the way there, he sees in the afternoon sky a vision. He sees a cross, and the words appear near the cross, by this sign you shall conquer. So he takes it as a sign from the Christian God that he is going to defeat his brother-in-law in battle. And as the story goes, he does. He wins the battle, converts to Christianity, um, and several years later, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so now the empire becomes married to what was once a deeply subversive movement of Jesus followers. The original Jesus movement that was patent, patently anti-imperial, that acted in subversion of Rome, that declared the emperor was not lord, that professed allegiance to an alternative way of being together opposed to the violence and injustice of the state, began to vanish. The image of the ragtag group of men and women who gave up everything to follow Jesus and be conduits for the kingdom of God began to fade. The subversive teacher who ate with sinners, welcomed the outsider, overturned the tables of money changers, healed the sick, and was labeled the criminal of the state and executed, was intentionally recast in the image of the empire. If you were to walk into a certain church in Rome today, you'd see a big mosaic on the wall, and it depicts Jesus sitting in an imperial throne, and you'd think it was Caesar. But it's actually Jesus, and beside him are the Roman, the Roman aristocracy. And this kind of epitomizes how Jesus became personified as one who is now head, divine head, of the Roman Empire. So following Constantine's conversion, the empire had this brand new deity to act on their behalf. This Jesus, who could help them win battles, expand territory, and bless their military might. God's son had been born again as imperial Jesus. Now, fast forward again to 1492. Brian spoke a little bit last week about 1492. What happened in 1492? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So we know about his epic voyage. He sailed over from Spain. He set out for India, crossed the Atlantic, the Atlantic, um, landed in the Caribbean, 
thought it was India, began calling people there Indians. Small mistake, right? I mean, no big deal. He discovered the new world, right? He opened the way for Europeans to settle here. And if it wasn't for him, none of us would be here. We're grateful for him. We celebrate his, his birthday every October. Good dude, solid guy. At least that's the story I was taught in school. And I think maybe some of you were taught the same. But we know what actually happened. And we know the real story is much more complex and far, far darker than that. We know that Columbus was actually a master imperialist. He was set out, sent out by the crown of Spain for economic and political gain. And he, of course, had the perfect partner with him, this imperial Jesus, his deity who would act on behalf of the crown. And we know all too well how the real story goes. Enslavement, forced conversions, genocide, ethnic cleansing, all done in the name of Jesus. The Jesus who was crucified by the empire to reveal and put to an end the violence of religious and political domination systems. These first wave of European colonists conquered with the sword in one hand and the cross in the other, which once again had become a symbol that represented imperial victory and death rather than the message of Jesus' reconciling love. Now, a major factor in legitimizing the violence and exploitation of Columbus and those who were to follow him came directly from the church. A series of documents known as papal bulls were written in the 15th century, the first by Pope Nicholas V. In it, he wrote, it was necessary to, quote, capture, vanquish, and subdue the Saracens, meaning Muslims, uh, the Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ, to put them into perpetual slavery and to take all their possessions and property. A second was written by Pope Alexander in 1493, just a mere year after Columbus discovered the so-called New World. This document gave to Spain all the lands west of present-day Brazil and gave to Portugal all the lands east of present-day Brazil. So this document literally divided the whole entire earth between Spain and Portugal. And these were the two main documents that became justification for this new colonial project. They legitimized control and subjugation of indigenous bodies and land and resources and rationalized the slaughter and enslavement of anyone who wasn't white, Western, and Christian. But these papal documents did more than just validate violence. They were doctrinal documents through which the church theologized humans into non-humans, persons into non-persons. Colonization, for the first time in history, received theological sanction. And the Great Commission text that we're looking at today has been used more than any other passage in the Old or the New Testament to colonize and assert Western dominion over indigenous people groups. Throughout Christendom, these four short verses at the end of the book of Matthew became the scriptural linchpin for violating black and brown bodies and installing empires in the name of Jesus. But that's way back then, right? We think about, like, that's the 15th century. That's kind of history. Why does, what does that have anything to do with today? Oh, here's what Brian McLaren says. He says there is a particular strain of Christian history that is still highly influential today a lineage of evil that stretches from Constantine to Pope Nicholas to Columbus to contemporary American and European politics. 
the tradition of racial and religious privilege and supremacy, specifically white and Christian privilege and supremacy. See, colonialism, it isn't just a history. Empire, it's not just a history. They're stories. They're stories that live on. They're stories that decreate, that take away dignity, that crush the image of God within people. Colonialism and empire are stories of death. And if we fast forward to today, we see the, how these stories are played out in our modern context. One way that we see it is in global mission aid and development projects that further Western agendas and approaches to poverty that are based on a West is best mentality, that fail to listen to the desires of local people and assert the opinions of so-called experts in places that they know little about. We see it in the forces of gentrification where people of color are pushed out of urban neighborhoods that they lived in for generations as housing prices soar, resulting in the breakdown of communities and widespread displacements. Another way we witness a legacy of empire that McLaren alluded to relates to race and the racialization of society. So race, of course, has to do with physical characteristics like skin color and hair type and eye shape, aspects of our physicality that form based on where a people group originally evolved due to climatological conditions. But race is more than just a descriptor of certain physical characteristics like skin color. It's more than a category or a box that you check on government forms. Race is socially and politically constructed as a means for the dominant group to have power and privilege. Race isn't biological, it's a social construct used to determine who has power and who doesn't, who has access to resources and who doesn't, even who lives and who doesn't. The dominant group politicizes this social construct called race to leverage power and benefit for themselves over and against others. In his book, The Death of Race, Building a New Christianity in a Racial World, Brian Bantam writes, race is the gravity of our present falling condition. Its power draws back any body that tries to find freedom. There is no escaping it. But race is not just a classification. Black, white, Latino, Asian American, these are the children of race. But race is an idolatrous tool, a pseudo-god invoked to recreate the world in its own image. So the beginnings of race in our country can be traced back to where it was largely forged in the crucible of those papal, bull, papal bulls of the 15th century in that theology that institutionalized white Western supremacy for the next 500 years, the legacy of which continues today. Mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, the widespread demonization of Islam and scapegoating of Muslims, broken treaties with Native American tribes, corporate and governmental refusal to honor the rights of our nation's indigenous people groups. Underneath all of these and all the racial injustices we see in our country today is a story of race that began centuries ago and still lives on in new iterations with new plots and new characters. So getting back to today's passage from Matthew's Gospel, what's often focused on in this text, this Great Commission text, is the very end of the passage where Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The emphasis here is on go out, go out and baptize, go teach, which many have taken to mean go out and recreate the world and other people in your own image, which of course we know it doesn't really mean. But what is the text saying then? How do we read it free from the snares of the imperial mind and Western supremacy? One way to begin is by looking at how Matthew's story is, inf is informed by the context in which he was writing, by the social and political dimensions of that time and that place. And the major underlying current was, of course, the Roman occupation. Scholars think the Matthean community was mainly comprised of urban non-elites. They likely spent a lot of their time in shanty towns and squatter camps where there were terrible working conditions and a very low standard of living. The people living in this urban squalor were excluded from having a voice in any of the planning and decision-making that affected their lives. And those of power and authority, on the other hand, mainly the religious and the political leaders, wanted to maintain the status quo, while others, like Matthew's community, wanted to change the very structure of society itself. Together, this community of oppressed men and women pursued a new identity and challenged the values of the Jewish and the Roman leadership. The leaders of the Matthean community identified themselves with, with Jesus, who had done the same thing, they believed, as they were trying to do. And because of that, there was conflict between Matthew's community and the Pharisees. The Matthean community fought against economic exploitation and cultural imposition, while the Pharisees sided with the Roman rulers to maintain their power and privilege. Imagine that kind of thing today. Powerful religious leaders backing a corrupt, potentially abusive political establishment. People of faith aligning themselves with a government that marginalizes, that is xenophobic, that oppresses the poor, the outsider that denies people basic human rights. So often, modern day political leaders function remarkably like Caesar, and so often, modern day religious leaders shamelessly support them. So the entire Gospel of Matthew intentionally interrogated the collusion of power between the religious authorities and the Romans. And an important but overlooked part of the Great Commission text comes in the sentence just prior to Jesus telling his disciples to go out into all the world. Just before this, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This line is so important because it sets up the rest of what Jesus goes on to say about going out to baptize and to preach. What's really interesting is that the word authority is a sociological term that it indicates a relationship between domination and subordination. And in the original Greek, the word authority meant ruling power or government or jurisdiction. So in saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus is again affirming that the kingdom of God is a true jurisdiction, the true reign, not Caesar, not Rome, not the Pharisees. He's explicitly stating that the political and social and economic systems of the world are to be part of the everlasting kingdom of justice, equity, and human flourishing that he's installing on earth. In the Matthean community understood Jesus as a king who is transferring God's authority 
onto them and that they would carry it on as agents of grace, agents of mercy and nonviolence and bearers of this alternative kingdom that was for all people everywhere. They were indeed to go and baptize and teach not to remake the world in their own image, but to work toward the world being remade in the image of this Jesus according to the reality of the kingdom of God. So Matthew was intentionally showing how he and his community understood Jesus and Jesus' authority. The Great Commission text then reiterates that Rome is not the authority. Caesar is not the authority. The Pharisees are not the authority. And while these words were written a few thousand years ago within a particular context, we can see in many ways that little has changed. This passage is every bit as relevant today as it was back then. The Great Commission text remind us, reminds us that no modern-day Caesar or kingdom or power has a final word over any of our lives. The Great Commission text interrogates all stories of death that have been told to us and about us, whether about race or sexual orientation or gender identity or stigma for mental illness or something else altogether. The Great Commission invites us to question and reframe each and every death-dealing story that has made its way into our lives. Whatever hatred you've experienced, however deeply you've been shamed, however many stories of death the power brokers have told about you, all of the ways you've been labeled, marginalized, or excluded is not the story of God and does not have the final say. They are not what is deepest, truest, most real about you or about anybody. And in fact, they are subject to the kingdom of God, the true authority that promises a collapse of the old and a rebirth of the new and invites us to be conduits wherever we are for peace and the flourishing of all people. Let us pray. God, we acknowledge that no empire... No kingdom, no modern-day Caesar, no story of death has the ultimate authority. We assent to your kingdom of love and peace and flourishing that is within us, among us, and around us. Amen.
Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Ryan, for the depth and the insight and the challenge this morning. I really, really appreciate it. And now, as you go from this place, may you know that the world is too beautiful to be praised by only one voice. And so may you have the courage to sing your song and remember that the world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands. So may you have the courage to use your gifts. And as you go, may the light of God shine upon you and in you and through you. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.